earlier uh, last week, uh, earlier last week, our daughter Manny was running around the house singing a song that she had learned and uh, here at church, uh, but she didn't really know the words quite well, so she just sang, uh, "Father Abraham, and so are you," <laughs> and. Not being one to tolerate poor theology in my home, I said, uh, Manny, that's not how the song goes. Let me teach you how the song goes. And so I began to, to, to sing with her. Father Abraham had many sons. The many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. She learned that in, in, in church growing up, and I learned that when I was growing up in church. How many of you guys learned that song growing up in church? Okay, a few of us. Okay, good. Uh, that song always confused me because... I couldn't understand how I am a son of Abraham. What does that even mean? Right? Father Abraham had many sons. As far as I knew, he had one son. I, this, is what, this is my uh, elementary education teaching me that Abraham had one son. I didn't know about the other sons that he had. But how could he have so many sons and how could he actually be my father? And then why do we have to move our arms and legs and bob our head around and do the hokey pokey and all this stuff. It didn't, it didn't register to me. What does all of this stuff mean? And why is Abraham so important that children at the youngest age in church are taught songs about Father Abraham? Today, we're going to learn about who he is and how he shows us of Jesus Christ and what it is that his life is pointing us towards. Abraham, arguably um, the great, one of the greatest people who've ever lived in the history of the world, three major religions traced their roots back to Abraham. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all of them say that Abraham is their father, is their founder. 308 times in the Bible, 308 times in the Bible, Abraham's name comes up, either Abraham or Abram, which was his name before it got changed. Out of 27 books in the New Testament, 11 of them speak the name of Abraham, and all four Gospels talk about Abraham. And so who was this man, and why was he so great? In the Hall of Fame of Faith, there is a, a Hebrew Hall of Fame, a Jewish Hall of Fame, a Hall of Fame of the Christian faith. It's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. And in those verses, in that chapter, we see a who's who of all the great people of faith throughout Israel's history. And in that chapter, we see men and women, David, Samson, all of these people, and they each get one verse devoted to them. Moses gets six verses. Do you know how many Abraham gets? Everyone else gets, gets one verse. Abraham gets 12 verses. Why? Why is he such a stud when it comes to our faith, when it comes to biblical history? Who is, who is Abraham, and why is he so important for us to understand? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at his family history and then look at the call that God placed in his life. But we're going to try and piece together where he comes in. We've seen uh, after creation and fall and all these things, the world gone bad. Genesis 6 through 9 talks about the flood and how the earth was wiped out. And Noah, his three sons and their wives, eight of them all told, were saved by God in the ark through the flood. Okay? After the flood, the waters recede. Okay? The flood is done. The ark is on dry ground. Eight people come out. Noah, his wife, and then his three sons and their wives. Three sons, a guy named Shem. It's a funny name, right? Shem. A guy named Ham, an even funnier name, and a guy named Japheth. Hey, we don't know much about Japheth. He was a pretty good dude. Ham was a bad guy. Right? He was a what? If you, if you read in, in, in Genesis chapter uh, 9, he does some bad stuff to his dad. He okay? does some really bad stuff, kind of defiles him while he's naked. People aren't really sure what he did. He may have... Uh, did some kind of sexual act to him, but he was a bad man. And so when Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, he curses Ham and he curses that line. And that group of people is called the Canaanites, okay? the inhabitants of the promised land, these bad people. Okay, Japheth, he was a pretty good dude. We don't know too much about him, but there's a guy named Shem, right? You ever hear of this word, the, uh, the Semitic people, the Semites, the Jewish people come from the line of Shem. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that through Eve, a Savior is going to come. Okay, that line is traced through Noah, through Shem, and then 10 generations after Shem comes Abraham, right, in this line. Okay, so here's the story of Abraham, the true story of what happened, beginning in chapter 11, verse 27, 
Uh, it says this is the account of Terah, who's actually Abram's father. Verse 27, chapter 11, and then chapter through chapter 12, verse 9. This is God's word. <clears throat> this is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram. Yeah, that was, that's Abraham before his name got extra letters. Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was a daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah's nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll read verses 6 through 9 a little bit later. But this is God's word. What is it that we're supposed to see? And why is it Abra- Abram, Abram, Abraham has been called the father of our faith? Right? He's a hero of faith. What was it about his faith that speaks to us and that points us forward to Jesus? The first thing, the first thing that I want to mention and point out is that God calls us to trade the world and its promises for him and his promises. God calls us to trade the world and its promises for him and his promises. Verse 27 in chapter 11 begins to tell us about Abram's father, Terah. And as you read this, how many of you guys, as I was reading verses 27 through the end of the chapter, you were kind of like, ah, whatever, I don't understand any of these people's names. How many of you were like that? Okay, some of you are honest and nodding your head, and David's raising his hand good, and assuming all the sixth graders, okay, they're, they're so innocent, they answer questions truthfully. But all of us are probably like that, right? We're reading, we're like, okay, uh, I, can you draw this out for me, family channel? I don't understand these people. But the, the point is that family meant a lot to Abram. He's got a father named Terah. Terah has a son, Abram, another son named Nahor, another son named Haran. It's confusing because there's a guy named Haran and a place called Haran. But that's beside the point right now. So uh, Terah has these three sons. Okay, Abram and his two brothers. And while they're there, one of his brothers passes away. And he has a, that dude had a son named Lot. And so Abram adopts Lot, kind of his nephew, becomes the guy who sticks with him. It talks then about how Abram has a wife. Her name is Sarah. But Sarah is barren. That means she can't have any children. Now, the Bible in the Old Testament doesn't give much description. Right? It's, but the Bible is famous for what's called the economy of words. It only says what is, what is um, exactly necessary to communicate what needs to be communicated. So it doesn't talk a lot about, oh, she was, looked like this or looked like that. The description of the character comes in their words and in their actions. But here specifically, it tells us now Sarah was barren. If you don't know what that means, it says after that she had no children. So basically the setup. For Abram's life, he's 75, he's, he's an old man right now. He's got a wife, but she has no children, and she cannot have any children. In the eyes of the world, humanly speaking, they are a hopeless couple as it relates to their future. There's nothing that they can do about their future. And so at a certain point, uh, Abram, Lot, Sarah, and Terah, his father, they leave because God told them to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and to go to Canaan, the promised land. But they decide to stop in a place called Haran. And it's there, maybe uh, for whatever reason, maybe father couldn't travel very far. Um, maybe for whatever reason, they stopped there. And it says there in that land, 
Tara dies at the age of 205 years old. Ripe old age. See, but what, one of the things that we see as you go generationally down the line, if you read in the, in, in, in the lineage, chapter uh, 11, verse 13, there's a guy named Arphaxad. He lived 403 years, and then you see uh, Terah living 205 years, and then each progressive generation, the lifespan gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Abram, 175. Uh, Jacob, 147, I think, and then Joseph, 110. By the time of Moses, the lifespan gets to about 80, 70, 80 years old. That's the average lifespan. Moses lives a little bit longer, actually a lot longer. But the degenerative effects of sin from the flood onward cause a shortening of life. And God says this is the way life is going to be. It's going to be at about 70, 80 years old in biblical times. That's the way it was. But here you've got this all set up. Family is so important, so crucial to Abram. He's lost his brother. He's lost his dad. He's got his wife, no children, but they've got Lot. And at the beginning of chapter 12, this is what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. What is he saying when God is saying this? Literally, when he says leave, it means to sever all ties. It means to completely cut off. It means to disassociate yourself. It means to burn every bridge you had with these three things. What? With your country, your people, and your father's household. He's saying leave all of that stuff behind and move forward. I don't know um, if God would ever call us to do this. But to leave your country behind is a huge deal. Because this place, it says they lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. This was the center, the heartland of Canaan, of pagan worship. It was in 1922 to 1934, there's a guy named Sir Woolley. Um, He excavated this area in, in the Middle East. And they found out a lot about this ancient area called Ur. They found out, first of all, that it was filthy rich. It was extremely sophisticated. It was extremely highly cultured. They found uh, houses made with brick, two-story homes in the time that Abram lived. Some of them had up to 10 to 20 rooms in them. They were whitewashed for aesthetic purposes. It was a beautiful place. They had a university. They had a library in that place. They were highly sophisticated, and for that time, they were highly technologically advanced. They had plumbing systems. They had kitchen works, all of that stuff. And compared to all of the other places in the ancient Near East, this place was, some commentators said this was the New York City of their time. The place where everybody wanted to be. And yet in that place, verse 2, verse 1, God says, leave your country. Leave all of that stuff, Abram. Leave all of that stuff. And the pagan gods that they worship and go. That means, I mean, this is not like today where we can go to a foreign country and we can relatively, in a, well, there'll be a little bit of culture shock, but we can kind of pick up where we left off. It's not like some study abroad thing where he's saying go for six months and then come back and then you get to say, oh, you know what, I, I'd love to go to France or I'd love to go to Greece or I'd love to go to Italy. It's not that. He's saying go, leave all of this stuff behind. Leave your country, the, the roads that are familiar to you, the language that's familiar to you, the lifestyle that's familiar to you, all the things that you know, leave all of that behind and, and go. And he's like, where do I go? Like, don't worry about that. Just go. And I'll show you where you're supposed to go. It says, leave your country. It says, leave your people. It says, leave your homies. Leave the people that you play Pokemon cards with. Leave the people that you go shopping with. Leave the people that you hang out with. Leave all these people behind. Leave your people and, and go. And then he says, leave your father's household. Which is, we've just seen his father's household is so important to him and to, the, to his way of life. He's saying, cut ties with all of that stuff. Leave all of that behind and go. This is a hard call. It's a very difficult thing that God is calling Abram to. But what God is calling him and ultimately what he's calling us to is going to look different for you and me as it looked for Abram. He's not going to tell us to do all these things because we're not in the place of redemptive history as Abram was. But what God ultimately calls each of us to is to leave the world and all that it promises in order that we might have God and all that he promises for you and me. You see, when 
he tells us to leave these things behind. And then starting in verse 2, he tells us, this is what I will give to you, Abram. This is what I'm going to give to you. He says, I will make you into a great nation. This doesn't make any sense to him. How will I become a great nation when it's just Lot and me and my wife and we don't have any kids? How am I going to become a great nation? Saying, I'm going to make you into a nation with people with a land. And ever since Adam and Eve were booted out of the Garden of Eden, they were wanderers. Ever since Cain was wandering, all of humanity has been looking for a place that they could call home. This is the Tower of Babel. We want this to be our place. We want this to be our place that reaches the heavens. This is, we want to be the center of the world. But God said no. And he sends them out and they're wandering, looking for a place to call their own. And God says, look, in in the first thing he promises, seven things that he promises. And these seven things symbolize the perfection that God's blessing is perfect in our lives. His promise is perfect in our lives. The first thing he says, I'm going to make you into a nation, a great nation. You will be the center of the world. And through you, people are going to come to know me. The first thing he says, I'll make you into a great nation. He says, and I will bless you says, I will bless you. Isn't this the longing of every human heart to be blessed by God? Whatever we think that means, we want to be blessed by God. And God promises, I will bless you. He says, I will make your name great. Remember last week, it was the Tower of Babel. The reason the builders built this tower was so that we might make a name for ourselves. But the only name that they have is a name of shame and disgrace. He says, I will make your name great because I'm the one who can do it. He says, and you will be a blessing. What an amazing thing that is for your life to be a blessing to other people. Has anyone told you that before? I thank you because you blessed me. Your life blesses me. I'm a better person because of you. I'm a better woman. I'm a better man because of you. Thank you for all that you do. I will bless those who bless you. And you got a friend, I'll take care of them. You got family members who love you, I'll take care of them. I will bless those who bless you. People treat you right, I'll take care of them. Don't worry about it, I'll take care of them. I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse. As you got an enemy, I'll take care of them too. Don't worry about it. God is saying to Abram, I got your back. And I got your back, don't worry. I'm going to look out for you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And isn't that every person's dream for your, for your children? That the entire world be blessed through them. Isn't that your dream for your life? That through me, all the nations on earth, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And just as After Cain had killed his brother Abel, it was I, 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 I. And just as a tower babble, uh, the builders were like, let us, let us, let us. God says about this. This is God's answer to the tower of Babel. When they said, let us do all these things, God says, Abram, listen, I will do these things for you. I will do these things for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And this is where faith is put to the test, where we have this choice. The world offers us all of these things. It promises all of these things. And it says, we'll give you this stuff. We'll give you a name. We'll make you famous. We'll bless you. And God's calling us to do a difficult thing, to leave all of that stuff and to say, do I believe that God, what God gives to me is far greater than what the world can give to me? That even though we may not be able to have children, this is what... I will make you into a nation. I will give you something greater. Even though I may not be able to make a name for myself, God says, I will give you a name. I will do these things for you. Whatever God says, leave behind. He's saying, I will give you an infinite measure. Leave your people behind, then I'll make you into a nation. Leave your family, I'll give you a family. Leave your country, I'll give you a country. I'll give you a land. Leave these promises behind, I'll give you promises so much that you don't even know what to do with all of them. The question is, Abram, do you believe this? The question is, Harvest, do we believe this? Do we believe that the God of the promise is able to give us more than what the world promises to us? And are we okay with that? Are we okay believing that if God calls us to be a missionary in a foreign land, that that's far greater for us than becoming a rich and famous scientist, doctor, physicist here on earth. 
Do we, believe, do we believe in our hearts and our bones that that's better? If the world is calling us to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and that's our inheritance in the eyes of the world because of all that we've done, and God says, no, don't do that, don't do that. I want you to work 8.30 to 5.30 and be a, a, yeah, you can still make money, but I don't want you to be a CEO because that's going to take you away from my plan. I want you to be 8.30, 5.30 so that you can be a prayer warrior for the kingdom of God. Is that enough for us? If God calls us to his dreams and his promises and they, and they are, are at loggerheads with what the world gives to us, are we okay choosing by faith what God calls us and says to us is better? And are we okay dreaming those dreams for our family members if that's the dream that God has for them? And his dreams are different from the dreams of this world. Is that enough? Is that good enough for us? Because this is what marked Abram as a man of faith. Our faith isn't shown in what we say and what we sing. It's shown in what we do. It's shown in our actions. James chapter 2, Hebrews 11, and throughout Scripture, God's always saying, don't tell me with your lips, show me with your, with your, with your life. And when the world calls and when God calls, is God's call enough for us to say, God, I'll follow you? Is his dream and is what he promises good enough for him? More importantly than that, it's not only what God promises and what God gives versus what the world gives, but is God enough for you and me? Is God himself enough? And even if none of these things are given to me, is God enough? That, am I okay saying, God, I'll follow you, even though I may never be, have a great name on this earth, even though I may never have lots of money in this life, even though I may never have all the, the treasures and the things that people tell me to have, is he enough for you and for me? This is what Abram was challenged with. This is what we're constantly being challenged with. The world is throwing these things, throwing these dreams at us, throwing these promises at us. And God offers himself. I had a public speaking class I took in college and 12 of us in the room. And the first assignment we got, each of us got a fortune cookie. We had to hold on to it until it was our turn. We had to break open the fortune cookie, read the fortune. And then within 10 seconds, we had to start a speech. And I remember uh, just shaking in my seat, saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I broke open the fortune cookie and it said something like, uh, a friend is the richest treasure in the world or something, something like that. And so my speech was I, was, I, I was acting like I was a presenter at some award show and I was presenting the award for best friend to my best friend. And I, I, was, I was listing the qualities of a, of a friend, a true friend. What is a, quali- what is a friend to you? People have uh, said Things like a friend is someone who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. Friend is someone who knows everything about you and loves you just the same. A friend is someone with whom you can sit in silence and the silence is not awkward, but it's comfortable. Someone who you consider to be, the, you're, the, you're the wind beneath my wings, that I would be nothing without you. You are the one who in, uh, called me into, into greatness. You're the one who pushed me to become far more than I could ever be. What is a friend? We all know that we long for a friend, a friend who is faithful, a friend who is loyal. And in James chapter 2, it tells us that Abram believed God. And God said that that is your righteousness. And then he said, Abram was called a friend of God. Is it enough for you to let go of all that the world promises to you so that you might be a friend of God? That God might say, you are my friend. That God would be a friend to you. That God would be the one who fights for you. That God would be the one who stands up for you. That God would be the one who promises and and gives you, knows everything about you and loves you the same. Is that enough for you to give up all of these things for? To give up the dreams, to give up the acclaim, to give up all of the things that, that, that you could be in the eyes of the world. Again, what good is it, Jesus says, for a man, for a woman to gain everything that the world wants? 
and yet forfeit his soul or lose his soul. Is that enough for us? Because the first thing that we see about Abram's life is that God calls us right, to trade the world and his promises for God and his promises. The second thing that we see, second thing, is that faith calls us to be courageous, not comfortable. Listen, if you want to live a life of faith, right, we cannot be both courageous and comfortable at the same time. This promise that God was given, I will do all of these things for you, didn't make any sense to Abram. Right, how is this going to happen? I'm old, I'm 75 years old by the time this promise has been given to him. Right, there's nothing, no human hope, how can this be? And yet again, faith is shown not in what we say, but in what we do. It's shown in our actions. And so Abram took a step of faith to believe. And into the glorious unknown, leaving the comforts of Ur of the Chaldeans, he set out for the land that God was showing him. And he went by faith. And if we want to be used by God in this life to be a blessing, we can't be both comfortable and courageous at the same time. If you want to be used to be a blessing to the world, then it's going to require courage to step out of what we know, to step out of what is comfortable, and to move into places where we don't see what the next step looks like, because that's how God works. Just go to the land I'll show you. Go. Just go. Just start walking. I'm with you. Just go. I've never failed, and I won't start now. Just go. Just keep going. We want to be used by God as individuals, as a church, we can't be comfortable because faith, because faith always calls us to courageous living. It always calls us out of where we currently are. See, the people that make history, biblical history, Christian history, are people who are willing to move out of their comfortability and into places of courage. Think about people like, like Noah. He could have very easily been comfortable hanging out with the rest of his culture, with the rest of his generation, just kind of chilling, kicking it with the sinners. But it took courage, it took faith, a courageous faith, to begin building this boat when he was ridiculed and mocked and yelled at, when his family began to suffer for it. But he said, in courageous faith, I will move forth in what God's calling me to. And because of that, his entire family was saved. And he could have saved his family scorn for just a little bit by moving back into a comfortable life. But he chose to be courageous and through it, his family was saved. And through that, the line, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 continued on through his son. Think about somebody like Moses. He was adopted by the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Everything about his life was setting him up to be the prince of Egypt. The prince of stinking Egypt, the greatest powerhouse in the world. You know what the, you know what the heir, Pharaoh's heir had as his inheritance? He had all the gold of the, uh, of the tombs, of the pyramids. That was his inheritance. He could have had all the women he wanted, all the, the riches he wanted. He could have had the best royal food. He could have had the best camel. He could have had the best Egyptian clothing. Everything that he ever wanted. But he traded all of that in courageous faith. He said, I don't want to be comfortable because there's a nation of slaves that need to be saved. And God is calling me to be a blessing to them. And he identified, he chose to identify himself with a people to be mistreated in order that he might be the deliverer out of Egypt, out of slavery, to bring them to the edge of the promised land. Because it was a faith that was courageous. We can't be courageous and comfortable at the same time. We can't be comfortable if we want to be a blessing to people around us. We can't. We can't. Because faith always takes us out of ourselves and to put our trust in somebody, a God that we don't see physically, but whose promises are clear. Think about somebody like Hosea and all of the prophets of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah called the weeping prophet. These people were called to preach to people whose hearts would be hardened, to preach to wicked people. Jeremiah never saw one convert in all the years of preaching and he wept over his nation. But not one single person turned and put his faith in him. The call of Isaiah was go to a people and you, as you preach and their hearts are going to get harder and harder. I think of Hosea. 
when God called him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. God said, you've got your wife, Gomer. She's going to become a prostitute. She's going to cheat on you and be unfaithful. And so she did. And God said to Jose, he said, buy her back. Even though she's yours, pay money to buy her back. He said, that's not what I signed up for when you called me to be a prophet. He said, go do it because I need to show my people Israel that this is what they're doing to me. You are called to be pledged to me, but you've prostituted yourself to other lovers. But I will pay the price in order to have you back. Hosea could have stayed in the comfort of his own life and of a, of a fine marriage, but he called, was called out into a courageous lifestyle. You fast forward to John the Baptist. He could have been comfortable living the life that he wanted to live, but he preached with boldness and he preached the repentance. He preached at the coming of Christ. And because he stood up for what was true, his head was chopped off because he stood for his convictions, a courageous faith. But he was the one that prepared the way for the risen Lord Jesus Christ to come follow him. And on and on it goes. It was Peter safe in his boat with the 11 other disciples. And Jesus said, come, take a step of faith onto the water. Will you dare to do it? And 11 other people said, no, don't do it, Peter. That's stupid. Why would you do that? But Peter said, Jesus is calling me to come. And so he takes this one step out onto the waters. There's people like Paul who preached boldly. And because he was courageous for his faith, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, 39 lashes several times, at the edge of death, he starved. He was, he was mistreated by, by fellow believers. He was mistreated by the enemies. He had to go through all of this stuff, but he changed the world because he was courageous in his faith, because he decided in his heart that Jesus is enough for me to follow him. And all he needs to say is, come, and I'll go, is Jesus enough for us? To move forth because we cannot be comfortable and change the world. We cannot be comfortable and be a blessing to other people. You can't, you can't have both ways. You see, the, the people who are comfortable are comfortable because our eyes are focused on ourselves. We begin to give reasons why I shouldn't take a step of faith. Because I failed last time I tried to do that. Because there's enough people doing that. Because it's hard, because it's scary, because it's challenging. But people who are courageous don't look at ourselves. They look upwards at God. And they see the promise of God. They see the faithfulness of God. They see that he will not fail. And that all of him is more than enough for all of us. And it's what causes people to say, it's what caused the first missionaries in Africa to pack their belongings, not in a suitcase, but in a coffin. They knew that they were going to go and they knew they weren't coming back. But they said, there's a nation of people. There's a continent of people that need to know Jesus. And I can't be comfortable when they hear the gospel week in, week out, week in, week out, hundreds of times in my lifetime when they've not heard it one time. And so they went and they gave their lives. So it caused William Borden of Yale, Yale, the heir, the multi-million dollar heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. After he graduated from Yale, he said, I want to go to the Muslims in China. And he got sick before he ever set foot in the country that he loved, in the country they prayed for. 26 years, 26 year, years old, a, a million-dollar inheritance, a Yale education, 26 years, his life ended, cut short. But he said, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. This is the life I've chosen because there's people that need to know the Lord. We can't be comfortable and be courageous. We can't be comfortable and change the world from the comfort of our seats. We can't, we can't, we can't. And God's calling the people of God to move forward in faith, in courageous faith, to look not at ourselves, but to look at God and to say, I will go. I'll go forth wherever it is that you call me. See, the problem with Abram, Abram was a great man and he acted in faith, but the problem with him was that he acted slowly. As, as you read chapter 11, you read about how uh, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, God had said, leave these things behind. And all the commentators say that God gave this call to Abram while he was still living in Ur of the Chaldeans, but he didn't go. He didn't move. And so it tells us that his brother died in that place. It says at the same time, as he started moving, instead of going to the land that was promised Canaan, he stopped in Haran, and there his father died. 
And the commentators are saying it's because Abram was afraid to move because he didn't want to move because he started and he stopped. He started and he stopped that God was stripping him. He was weaning him of all of these things, all of these earthly loves in order that he could fulfill the call that God had for him. Hey, do you feel like God's stripping you of stuff in your life? Feel like he's pulling things away from you? Right? Releasing you from different dreams that you had? Right, pulling you away from things, things being taken away. I don't know what, what, what they might be. Things that you used to hold so dearly to. All of a sudden, these things are being chipped away and stripped away from your life. Right, could it be that if Abram is a model of faith, could it be that God has a very specific calling and plan for your life that is requiring you to loosen and travel lightly in order that you might fulfill the purpose that God has for you. If you look through Abram's life, none of these things, none of the hardships, none of the trials in his life were wasted. All of these things were building faith within him to become the man of God that he could, that God was calling him to be in order that faith might be strong. God was chipping away, stripping away, weaning these things because God had a calling for him that was far bigger than he could ever dare to imagine. Feel like God is squeezing you. God is calling you, pushing you. Because God always disturbs the lives of the comfortable in order that we might go forth. Because God has a calling for our lives. He disturbs the comfortable in order that we might comfort those who are disturbed, distressed, discouraged, in need. And you want to be used by God? You got to be courageous. Faith always is courageous. It's never comfortable, never sits back, but it moves in obedient faith. The second thing, last thing, last thing. Faith is what keeps us going even when we can't see God. Faith is what keeps us going even when we can't see God. So at each stop, as Abram is traveling, it says in verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. That time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. You look in chapter 13, verse 18, says, So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Three times we see Abram building an altar to the Lord. Why? Well, most people would say, well, he's, he's worshiping there. But the significant act is not in what he does, but in where he does it in uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Right? It tells us that this is at Morah, at Shechem. Chapter uh, 12, verse 8, it was at Bethel on the west and I on the east. 13, verse 8, at Mamre at Hebron. These were all significant places of idol worship for the Canaanite, Canaanite uh, idolatry. At every single one of these places, in the shadow of these shrines... In the shadow of these shrines, Abram is building an altar to worship God, even though everything about that land is saying this land is occupied by the evil people, by the wrong people, by the idolatrous people. In the midst of that is a defiant act of worship, saying, God, I believe that this land is going to be ours according to the promise that you've given to me. At that first place he goes, when he, he goes to, to Shechem, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Abram is thinking, what do you mean the Canaanites are in the land? This is the land that you gave to me. This is the land that you promised to me. But they're in this land. These idol-worshipping, pagan, idolatry. These people are here. And yet in faith, he builds an altar and he begins to worship the Lord God. It's his way of saying that even though nothing in this land looks to be yours, God, I will trust in the promise of God. I will trust in you even though I cannot see you. I will trust in the promise that you've made because you've called me to this place. 
and in defiance against all of the things that he sees, in defiance against all of the darkness around, he builds an altar and he worships to set up a light in the midst of this place. And he says, I'm claiming this land for God. The, uh, that's what Adam and Eve, that's what Noah were originally called to do, to take the image of God and spread it, to claim the land for the kingdom of God and to say, this belongs to God. Right? This is what God is calling all of us who have faith to do and to be. It is to hold on to God, even when we don't see the work of God in our land, to claim that this place is a place of worship for the true living God who will be faithful to his promises. When we don't see him at work, faith in God's promises, faith in God is what keeps us going even when we can't see him. A lot of times we don't see God. But even children can teach us this lesson. This um, Halloween, uh, October 31st, our church had this, uh, this celebration here. And one of the, the stations, uh, different games, and one of the things that the children were doing where they were playing this game, it was called Pin the Nose on, on Some Animal. It was in the far room down there. And the group that I was following around was like three years old, four years old. And they would get blindfolded and they get spun around twice and they had to go and put a nose on the face of this animal. I don't know about you, but if I'm four years old, getting blindfolded is really scary. And then getting spun around is really scary. Right? You have no idea where you're going. And some of these kids were doing a great job, but my daughter was scared. Right? Nanny was scared. And she's like, no, I don't want to do it. Why, why do I have to wear that around my face? Why do I have to turn around like that? I don't want to do this. I said, I, I, yeah, I don't want you to be a, a sellout and a chicken when all your friends are doing this. So you got to do this. So um, we cheated a little bit. I said, okay, Manny, here, blindfold and, and spin around. And I said, daddy's going to be here. Just follow. Just come to my voice. And she can say, up, uh, that means daddy. She's like, up, uh, up. <laughs> I was like, daddy's right here. Just follow me, follow me, follow me. And she eventually got to that place and she stuck the nose nowhere near the nose of the animal. But she ended up get, getting candy for it, so she was rewarded. But that's exactly what faith is, isn't it? Like when I don't see it, when I can't see, I, I, I trust and I believe that he's here and I follow him. And I follow him because I know that he's right. The God of angel armies is always by my side. He's the one who goes before me. He comes behind me. I'm not left to myself. It's faith that keeps us going when we don't see God. When we don't see his hand at work in our lives, we trust his heart. We trust his voice. And as far as he says, come, then we come and we go where he's leading us to go. Guys, I, I, I believe in my heart that God is calling us at harvest, to a, a new season of faith. Right? To a courageous faith that pushes us out of our comfort zones. That tells us that we can't stay where we are. That's why Abram built the altar, is by faith. Because he believed that this land one day is going to become my land. Is one day is going to become a land marked by God. That's why he built an altar. That's why the first, the earliest missionaries in every continent, continent that they went to, they, the first time they set foot, most of the missionaries were killed wherever it is that they went. But they went by faith. And even though they didn't see anything, right, their lives, as they laid down their lives, martyrs' faith, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. They don't know what's going on. They go and they, and they end up being greeted by, by guns, by, by weapons, by spears. And they die, and it inspires a new generation of people to come behind them. And they're the ones who are the first missionaries to, to Korea, killed all of them. But they blaze a trail for other people to go in. And now, say what you will about Korea, but it's the second largest missionary sending nation, that tiny little nation, Korea, because people are willing to go. And it's every nation, every nation is like that. India killed, China killed, everybody, North Korea, everywhere you go. Right? Not just in Asia, the Middle East, right? all around. It takes this courageous kind of faith. And I believe that's why we're building this. We're not building a new building because we're too crowded in here. Right? You know what? If that's the reason we're building, then yeah, we'll put up with that. We'll put up with that. But we're building a new building because there's people that need to know Jesus that are all around this area. Whether we see it or not, the heart of God is that I want these people in my family. Right? That's why we do this. That's why we do this. That's why he built an altar. That's why we build a building. It has nothing to do with the building. It has everything to do with the kingdom. It has everything to do with the family. It has everything to do with what God promised. 
They're people that deeply and desperately need salvation. And once they get it, some of these people who come in are going to be sent forth into the nations as well. But God's calling us to faith. I remember when I came down here, I, I was looking back at my journals from 2001, 2002 last night, looking at newsletters and, and prayer letters that I sent up to my friends in, in Virginia and, and people at my church. When I told them I was coming to Orlando, people were like, is there really a school down there? Is there really a seminary? Is there really a church down there? And they were joking, of course. But I said, yeah, of course there is. They thought I was coming down for Disney. thought I was coming down for the Orlando magic. But when I first came down here, this was one of the things that I said. And this, was, this has been my prayer. I said, I don't want our city, when people think of me being in Orlando, I don't want anyone to think that the, the first thought is not Disney, is not the magic, is not these things, is not vacationing. I want people's first thought to be this is a spiritual place where people are being trained to do the work of God, where they're being sent forth to do the work of God. And that's where I planted my altar. And I said, God, this is what I long for. This is what I want. This is what I want. And long before I ever came into this place, there's people who are praying. Your parents, parent generation, they were praying for something like this. And we build our altar even when we don't see it because this is what faith does is we believe in a God who wants to do far greater things. God's done great things, but there's so much more, so much more that's yet to come. So much more that's yet to come if we step out in courageous faith. The nations are inherited. God wants to do this. God wants to work. But how do we do this? See, Abram was good, but he had his moments. The moments where his faith was sky high and then moments where he'll see he'll sell out his wife and prostitute her out to the king of Egypt. And he does this to the king of another nation as well because he's scared. If the father of our faith had that much doubting and that much fluctuation in his faith, then how will we possibly have faith that's going to bring nations to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Tell you what, we'll only be like Abraham if we look to the one to whom Abram pointed. You see, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the ultimate picture of faith, who left behind the treasures of the world, the treasures of heaven, left his Father's hand behind in order that he might follow into the unknown. He's the one who wasn't comfortable every moment of his life. He was taking a step beyond the ordinary, doing things, touching people that others wouldn't touch, talking to people that others wouldn't talk to, healing people, ministering, saying things that no one else would say, ultimately going to death on a cross, being willing to pay the price because he saw that his inheritance was the people of God throughout all time. And maybe as he hung on the cross, maybe in his infinite godly wisdom, there was people from every generation, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that at the end of it all, when he rose again, ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he lives to intercede on behalf of the lost, lives to intercede on behalf of those who are the children of God. It was him whose faith kept him going, even when the hand of the Father was removed from him. Because he trusted his father's heart, even when he had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's when we look at Jesus and we look at what he's done for us <coughs> in doing that, in leaving behind everything that he knew and everything that he held dear and venturing into the dark abyss of the unknown and dying on the cross. In so doing, Jesus created for himself a people who would live radically who would boldly go, who would boldly and courageously go into the unknown because they, though we know not what the future holds, though we know not where God's calling us, uh, we know that God is good and we know that he is faithful and that he will never fail us. And every time he tells us to step out onto the water, one of two things will happen. Either we will walk miraculously on water or we'll be wrapped up in the embrace of the Savior. There's no failure when we move out in faith. No failure when we move out in courage. That's what he's calling us to. Let's pray. Guys, I 
really believe that God wants to do something so much more in us and through us than we could ever know. I believe God's calling us to a vision far bigger than anything that we could dream or see. It takes courage to pray when nothing seems to be happening, to fast when nothing seems to be changing, to give when nothing seems to be getting better. It takes courage to serve when people don't appreciate you. But guys, this is a life we're called to. God's calling us to take a step. You and I don't want to be part of a a church that maintains, does what we do every week, week in, week out, but we want to be a church that's on the move. It's doing the work of God, taking ground, making a difference, making a change, seeing lives change, seeing the mission field come to know Jesus, sending out workers, because God, more than enough, Jesus is worth it. That's why it's all worth it. That's why it's all worth it. Jesus is worthy. Worthy. The Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord God, help me. Keep my eyes on you, not on the waves. Keep my eyes on you, not on myself. Keep my eyes on you, not on the boat. Take me, take me, take me, Lord. Step of bold faith, of courageous faith. Push me, stretch me, challenge me, that faith might grow. I might know the joy of having more of Jesus in my life. Let's pray together for a minute or two. Maybe God might be calling you right now to some step of faith. Maybe it's to commit to a mission trip. Maybe it's to commit to starting something at your school or in your business. Maybe it's committing to starting a prayer movement. Maybe it's committing to coming to prayer meeting. Maybe it's committing to to fasting once a week. Maybe it's committing to go to missions. Maybe it's committing to be a house church shepherd. Maybe it's committing to uh, give a little bit more radically with your finances. Whatever God is convicting us of now, he will never fail. He has never failed. And he won't start now. This is our God. This is our God. This is our promise. So let's take a step of faith and prayer right now. Say, God, whatever it is you're calling me, do. If you're calling me, I, I go. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. Here I am. Let's pray for a minute or two. tasted of the world and his promises that it's left me empty and I realize that maybe Jesus is the one that I need. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to, to raise your hand if that's you so that we can all pray a prayer together inviting Jesus to be our Savior. The Bible tells us that we're all deeply flawed. We're sinful is what it says. And God's purpose for us is for us to be in relationship with him. Then we can live life as it was meant to be lived but our sin blocks us so God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to be the bridge between us and God. And every person needs to choose to put their trust in Jesus, to be the forgiver of their sins and then to be the master of their life. So as we all continue to pray, if there's anyone in here you feel like, yeah, that's me. I need Jesus in my life. 
Maybe today, a step of faith for you. Just be to pray this prayer and invite Jesus to come into your life, to be your Savior, to be the new Lord, the master of your life, to give you what the world can never give and to give you what the world can never take. So as we all uh, pray and keep our eyes closed, if there's anyone like that in here, just ask that you could just quietly raise your hand from where you are. trust in you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord, that I might live for you. Come into my life and satisfy me. Fulfill my desires. And may your dreams for me be fulfilled in my obedience. In Jesus' name. As we continue to pray, I just want to give one more invitation. We don't do this often here. But maybe you uh, feel like God has been speaking to you this morning and feel like God is calling you to take a step of faith. For some, you know what that means. For others, you don't know what that means. But I want to help to make this uh, a little bit tangible for us that, that not just remain in the realm of our minds, our hearts, if you feel like God is calling you to take a, a step of faith, to live a bit more courageously in your faith for him, you feel like you want to be used, but you can't do that in the comforts of where we are right now. God's calling you to courageously move and to go take a step of faith you feel like that's you and God's calling you to, to take that step, I'm going to encourage you to do something bold and just simple, but bold, but just stand to stand from where you are. Say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to live courageously. I want to live by faith. For those folks, I just want to pray a prayer of blessings. If that's you, don't wait for other people. This is just, you feel like God's telling me I need to do this. Stand from
we um, continue to worship, I'm just going to invite, um, as you feel so led, I, I, I want to really allow this to be a faith activity, that as you feel God calling you through these songs to take a step, then in that moment you can stand and uh, just continue to, to worship the Lord God with the rest of the team. And if you just feel like you still need, just need to pray and wrestle your heart with God, then you can just pray where you are. But as you feel God calling you and feel like responding in faith and you stand from where you are, invite the ushers to to come forward as we uh, continue.